0: Thank you very much for coming this afternoon to Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson. I want to introduce uh, our panel. Um, This is probably the one room in all of Washington, I believe, this week that is discussing the Middle East that will have nothing to do with the Iran deal. Um, (laughs) However, we're going to see if someone on the panel is going to get extra points if they can tie in the Sinai insurgency, the Sinai campaign, into the Iran deal. I don't think it's going to happen, though. Um, but thank you all very much for coming. Um, we, will be discussing, we will be discussing the campaign in Sinai. We'll be discussing Egypt. And on the panel, first I want to introduce my, uh, my colleague and dear friend, Sam Tadros, uh, who is a, a senior fellow here at Hudson as well. To my immediate left is Jansen Garnett Janssen has been writing extensively on the campaign in the Sinai, where he's a frequent contributor uh, contributor, the Institute for Study of War, and all the way at the left, we will be leading off the panel this afternoon, he's been at Hudson before, uh, a, a terrific colleague, Mokhtar Awad, um, and um, we're going to go for about an hour and 15 minutes right now, and then I hope that we'll be able to uh, open it up for your questions, so if something comes up, uh, write it down or, or think about it. And, uh, and I hope that we'll get to that before we, uh, before we settle, uh, settle up and close here at one thirty. In the meantime, Mokhtar, uh, if, if you would like to lead off. Thank
1: you very kindly. Thank you, Lee. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be back here and always a pleasure to be on a panel with Sam. Uh, nice to see uh, Jansen for the first time. Um, the topic uh, we're going to discuss today is, of course, I think if we try to frame the, the importance of it, uh, We all know the the tired points. Egypt is the largest country in the region. And, um, you know, uh, many countries tend to follow the way of Egypt, as the saying goes. But, uh, you know, to to speak frankly, Egypt is a country that more or less now is looked at as one that is to expect what the the bad things are or what the negatives are or um, what kind of chaos it could possibly bring, as opposed to a country that can have added value in the region. Uh, And that's, of course, another issue, you know, to to be dealt with. So we focus on the security situation, which, to be honest, I don't feel has necessarily been um, analyzed in a um, a structured way Um, ever since July of 2013. um, There's a lot of uh, political points being made. Oh, well, you know, uh, Morsi's ouster happened, the coup happened, and therefore this is what we get, and this is a direct result of that. Or... Um, You know, simply because there is uh, repression of the MB, then you'll continue to get violence, and that's that. The reality is that there is a very complex um, security situation in Egypt or or, or threat kind of matrix, if you will. Um, And I'll briefly go through that. In Egypt, we have multiple threat theaters and multiple threat actors. And when we talk about the theaters, the first and most obvious is, of course, the Sinai and the insurgency that's in the Sinai, and here's the first group, indigenous Sinai-based jihadist groups was linked to international organizations, international jihadi organizations. The second theater is largely mainland Egypt. Um, I will include here the Delta and Upper Egypt, of course, and, and Cairo. And to a smaller extent, we could add a potential third theater, hopefully not, um, and that's, of course, the Western Desert. When we talk about the other groups that are operating in Egypt, of course, the most dominant um, and the deadliest is the Ansar Be'it al-Muqdis, now so-called Sinai province, uh, after it pledged allegiance to ISIS in November of 2014. But in reality, there has been a parallel track of violence, if you will, that has sprung up since uh, July of 2013. And that's mainly what I would classify or say, I think most people, for lack of a better definition, as a violent uh, but non-jihadist um, Islamist um, Uh, groups or or groups that are dominated by Islamists. They may not have a distinctively Islamist name or even a distinct ideology. Um, But um, anyone who knows anything about Egypt understands that the people who constitute these groups are um, uh, mainly Islamists. And of course, the overall political uh, implication is that they are engaged in violence uh, in order to advance political objectives that, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood um, has as a return to power, or for a more immediate reason, that they're acting in retribution um, for abuses uh, by the security uh, services. And the other uh, distinction that we have to make is that in mainland Egypt, we have these types of groups, and I'll go and give an overview of who they are. And we also have indigenous, if you will, or homegrown native uh, jihadist organizations. And this is a little bit important because. We used to, of course, have uh, insurgency in, in the Sinai um, for a number of years preceding uh, Morsi's ouster. Um, but before that, of course, some terrorist attacks that happened in the 2000s. Uh, but this is something that kind of operated very much in that orbit, um, has ties to, uh, or was, has been influenced by what's, what's going on in Gaza over the years, uh, and has historically had some ties to al-Qaeda. But since the 1990s, we haven't really had any substantial or even noticeable presence of international um, jihadists who are active in mainland Egypt. And in this category of these mainland-based jihadist groups, we really have one group. And that's called the Ajnaed-Masr group. And to me, that is one of the more um, interesting slash worrying group, because in that category is where you can see things might end up. These thus far non-jihadist militants, uh, again, who are mainly uh, either Muslim Brotherhood or non-affiliated uh, Islamists who don't necessarily have a uh, distinct ideology but want to break down the government, so there isn't really a strategy. The strategy is simply, well, chaos. Uh, and again, as I said, uh, revenge. And at the, in complete polar opposite, you have these jihadist groups that are well, now has, is affiliated with the Islamic State, and it very much transcends um, what these people are really concerned about, and that a, is either this government falling or paying, again, exacting retribution. And so in the middle, you have the option, if you will, of having a locally focused group um, that is very well jihadist in its orientation, uh, but at the same time, not uh, interconnected uh, with, operationally, groups like the Islamic State or even Al-Qaeda. And that is, in a way, what Ajnad Masr represents, um, although uh, the State Department and others say that it's technically a break-off uh, or breakaway group from Ansar al Maqdis, uh, but operationally and... In their, in their narrative, in their um, uh, uh, sophistication of their attacks, um, these weren't simply a ABM cell um, that was unleashed, because their early attacks are very rudimentary, and they grow and they grew in sophistication. The group, uh, there was a bit of a hiatus for over the past three months or so, but uh, I think yesterday or the day before yesterday, they took responsibility for, for an attack. So anyways, this gives you kind of an overview of the types of groups operating and understanding that even though we see militancy, it's happening by different actors for different reasons in different places. And the key thing, um, the the, kind of the the hypothesis, if you will, the way that I have been thinking about it and trying to understand um, and put in context really what kind of real threat this violence could actually mean for the state of Egypt, for the... Uh, survivability of the state. The way things are, none of these actors by themselves um, really represent that type of threat. So on al Muqtis, especially lately, it's been getting extra scary. Uh, and, and, and just a, on a tangential point, um, something that's really worrying is not actually the, the consulate uh, attack necessarily that happened, but for me, it's the attack or the, the, uh, the um, attempted attack on the cairo suez Road. Um, This is an area that, to me, is simply inexplicable. Um, How is it that they can have a uh, presence Um, there? It's supposed to be heavily secured. If not technically, I mean, this is not written in in stone, but from my understanding, uh, one of the most, if not the most, secured corridors in in all of Egypt because, you know, it ties, obviously, Cairo to to the Sinai in a major way. And that road itself, or um, the, the, the major road there, was built by the army. Um, and we, we've had a presence uh, there uh, in September of 2014. There was a shootout uh, in, these, uh, in the northern part of the eastern mountains, which is, again, um, uh, southwest of Suez. Um, and at the time, uh, similar thing that happens now, again, a very worrying attack, but there was no follow-up of explaining how that came to be. Um, so it's tying this September incident of militants' uh, being present again west of Suez, uh, and and just this week, uh, a, a suspected suicide bombing, or sorry, an attempted suicide bombing. Um, maybe uh, and this is pure, um, uh, you know, not really based on any any actionable information. But it, it seems like there is a presence that we haven't been made aware of, um, not just in Cairo, uh, which the Cairo, which the Italian consulate attack makes obvious, uh, but also in the eastern uh, region. Uh, of, of Cairo, which is, is a desert area and is a mountainous area as well. But back to what I'm saying about what's my overriding kind of uh, focus, what I look at as, as what could potentially actually be the thing that could uh, begin to break, break down, and this is unfortunately very doom and gloom, but it's something that I have thought about uh, for quite some time over the past year or so. I, I, I will have a paper coming out uh, later this summer that's based on all of this, all of this research and that the Sinai uh, group is largely confined um, to the Sinai, both in terms of its objectives and <clears throat> largely in terms of its operations. Um, and, and this is because they don't necessarily have, um, I think, the framework to position themselves as the um, you know, t- uh, top Egyptian Islamist uh, uh, jihadist uh, sorry uh, <coughs> group. And, and I think they're in, attempting to be that, and especially with the pledge to ISIS it's forcing them, and Sam can get a little bit into this. We, we, we will have a paper out on this very topic I, I hope this, uh, this, this next month. Um, th- th- their pledge to ISIS is kind of forcing them to be more than what they really are in their DNA, and that's a Sinai group. And at the same time as this is happening, they can't do much because they're not present outside of the Sinai in a substantial way. And so the key threat is this reservoir of Thousands of Islamist youth, really. Again, some brothers, but the the majority are not actually affiliated with any group. Some people mistakenly, and and perhaps it's a bit... um, uh, Let me me not use the word. But some people mistakenly say these are liberals or seculars. This is is just absolutely hogwash. These are other people... Not because you're not operationally inside the Muslim Brotherhood. uh, That makes you then a liberal. Um, There are many people who their worldview is very much... um, uh, 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 you know, it is exactly like uh, the Islamists. And the fact that they're not part of the organization doesn't mean that now we have liberal Egyptians who are involved with this. No, this is, if there are cases, these, these are very rare cases. Um, and for the most part, these, again, are, are people who have an Islamist worldview. And the problem is, is whether or not these individuals, over the long term, as they see that their current tactics aren't really actually getting them anywhere, um, this idea of exacting retribution without having an overriding ideology and, and, a, and a major objective to actually achieve regime change, um, then the best possible example to follow, um, and, and the group that quite literally has the means, the idea, the full package that I can promise you, you know, look at Syria, look at Iraq, look at Libya. We can do this here too. Uh, if you can imagine an ISIS salesperson. Um, you know, that I think is a very uh, good um, package uh, that can, uh, these people can find appealing. Uh, and, and, and things are only recently starting to move in this direction, I believe. Uh, I, I interviewed a, an ISIS um, member, an Egyptian ISIS member, who was in Aleppo. This was um, in the late summer of last year. And I asked him why, why he went there. And he said, well, Egypt does not land this ripe um, for jihad. And of course, I'm summarizing the conversation. And what I'm afraid is that more and more people like him, who are susceptible to joining groups like ISIS, would begin to see that actually, well, maybe conditions could be ripe uh, for jihad in Egypt. And so, if we start to see things moving in that direction, that more of these youth are are joining ISIS or themselves creating jihadist groups, because again, being jihadists or being Salafi jihadists, there, it means that there's going to be an overriding ideology that's going to um, allow them to, 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 to have an objective to take over the state as they would want it. Um, there is where we have the possibility of small groups picking up arms in some villages, in some towns, um, in, in certain places. Uh, get more in detail about this. There are certain flashpoints, definitely, that if you go on a map, you can easily tell if things do go south, this is where it's going to happen, most likely. Um, and we have seen kind of indications of this, and this will be the, the last point, uh, in July of 2013 when there were very few, sure, but uh, even two or three are problematic, towns that were outside police control in July and some many more towns that actually could have went um, that way. And I'm afraid that if we start having situation where um, these groups, so one of them is revolutionary punishment, which has carried out more than 130 attacks, claim to have killed 150, I couldn't verify this independently, but if a group like that has shown promise of being able to carry out sophisticated attacks, if they decide to change course and actually pick up weapons and try their luck, um, that is, I think, the kind of uh, war, the kind of fighting, kind of symmetrical uh, warfare that I don't think the security services in Egypt are well equipped for. Uh, Frankly, any security services in the world will have a major problem dealing with. Um, And we we can get into the policy side of things. And I think this this should be the thing that is always in the back of our minds uh, about what exactly we need to be Preventing, of course, ISIS in Sinai is a big problem, uh, but I think it could be ultimately contained, confined. But something like this, if it spreads, it's a cancer that really you can't stop uh, if it starts if it starts spreading. So I'll end it here, and uh, my colleagues can pick uh, thank, up on other aspects. Thank,
0: yeah, thanks, Mukhtar. That was terrific. Uh, one of the things that I um, I'm, I'm glad that um, I'm glad that you did touch on a number of different things. Especially, this is one of the things I'll come back to when I'm asking you guys questions. What does it mean that um, that they're uh, as, as affiliated with ISIS right now, what does that mean in particular with this group, and also how much will this look like the various insurgencies that we saw, the Islamist insurgencies in the '80s and '90s, which of course did take uh, which did come to Cairo and which came to other places, so that's a terrific
2: introduction. Thanks very much um, Jansen, I'm Jansen I 'm going to ask you to go next.: Okay, well, uh, thank you to the Hudson Institute and for Lee for hosting this event. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, very honored to be a part of this panel with. Uh, these two excellent uh, experts. Um, I'd like to just take a, a few moments and talk about the specific uh, security situation in the Sinai Peninsula, and, and specifically ISIS's affiliate, uh, Ansarbet al-Maktis, or, or Waleit Sinai, Sinai province, whatever you would like to call it. Um, the security situation in the Sinai is in my view, uh, very discouraging, and I don't see them improving anytime soon. Over the past nine months, really, since uh, Ansar Betel-Maktis pledged allegiance to ISIS and became Woleh at Sinai, we've seen them uh, progressively uh, uh, conduct more sophisticated attacks, more complex attacks, and acquire more sophisticated weaponry. Um, a, lot, a lot of people are really surprised just over two weeks ago, on July 1st when late Sinai conducted this, this uh, large attack targeting several different uh, security checkpoints throughout North Sinai. In my view, and I, I know there are people that uh, disagree with this, but it was an apparent attempt to seize and seize Sheikh Zuweid city in North Sinai, and actually hold territory, uh, much like ISIS does in, in parts of Iraq and Syria. Um, the, the size of the operation itself was unprecedented, uh, for sure. Uh, but in my opinion, I don't think that it was necessarily completely unexpected. We've seen since, since uh, October, November of last year, their attacks become much more sophisticated and much more complex. Uh, their inaugural attack, as as A. Sinai was in October, as, uh, against the Karama Kawadis, and that was their, the, the group's very first complex attacks, combining the tactics of a suicide car bomb along with armed assault. Um, and then following that, we've seen this progression of attacks uh, in complexity, and more recently with very sophisticated weapons, uh, such as guided anti-tank missiles, <coughs> recoilless rifle systems, uh, and a, a, apparently extensive use of uh, man-pads uh, to deter air, aircraft in their recent attack on Sheikh Zayed on July 1st. Um, ultimately, uh, they were they, they were re- forced, basically, to withdraw from Sheikh Zayed, uh, but it took more than 10 hours uh, for the Egyptian military to, to force them out of the city, uh, and they had to call in the Air Force, and this was probably one of the, the primary reasons they were forced to withdraw. Um, despite the intensified effort by the Egyptian military after uh, forcing them out of the city of Sheikh Zayed, despite all this, um, they continue to to launch deadly attacks against security forces uh, throughout North Sinai. Um, And as far as, like, control of territory in North Sinai, let me just posit a a few of my thoughts. There's not any one group that really controls the certain areas of North Sinai. The Egyptian military will have uh, mi- military posts, checkpoints uh, throughout the province. But outside of these stationary checkpoints, they don't really control much terrain. And the militants actually have free reign in a lot of this area. Um, you know, they, don't, they have these four-wheel drive vehicles. It's a desert. They don't need to use the roads. And so what they'll do, they'll they litter the roads with uh, road, uh, roadside IEDs. And therefore, whenever the security forces are forced to move out of their bases, uh, they have to deal with uh, multitudes of IEDs along the roadway, which has, uh, even this week, uh, led to uh, vehicles being, armored vehicles being destroyed, um, and have in the past led to deaths among security forces and and injuries. Um, Nevertheless, regardless of uh, their forced removal from Shi'axizadeh on July 1st, uh, the the militants appear, in my opinion at least, to <coughs> excuse me, uh, to be readjusting at, at least in the short term, uh, their goals. Um, I think now that they w- that they were proved unsuccessful in their attempt to seize and hold terrain uh, in Shi'axizadeh, I think they're going to revert back to the tactic of just targeting security forces uh, in an attempt to degrade the security environment in a and so that uh, they can, in the future, attempt again to seize territory. Uh, we've seen other worrying tactics employed by Willet-Sinai, uh, particularly uh, the use of IEDs uh, targeting the homes of security officials, uh, particularly in the provincial capital, al Uh They've used this tactic over the past year, but it really seems to have picked up this past month. Um, I don't want to really compare the situation in Egypt with that in Iraq. But it's very reminiscent of ISIS's tactics uh, around Mosul prior to the fall of Mosul, where they would go in and target, uh, in a very personal way, security officials uh, you know, blowing up their homes. Um, and so we've seen this. In fact, this past week, there have been four that have been claimed by by late Sinai. But we've had, over the, really the past month, even more than that. Um, around a dozen or so that have been claimed specifically by Waleh at Sinai, and then others have been reported in the press that haven't been claimed. Um, But this this tactic of uh, house-born IEDs um, really is an intimidation tactic um, used by the group and could, you know, what it basically indicates is that the group has the capability to conduct intelligence to find out where these uh, low and mid level uh, security officials live and then actually do uh, like operations inside the provincial capital to, to target these houses. Um, you know, furthermore, the late Sinai has now conducted operations outside of the Sinai Peninsula with this attack uh, near in Suez province east of Cairo, as uh, Mukhtar was mentioning. Uh, but also prior to that, just on Saturday, the car bomb attack that was claimed by ISIS against the Italian consulate is is very concerning. Notably, it was claimed by ISIS, but not specifically attributed to Walei Sinai. Uh, this is uh, significant insofar as it suggests that that ISIS has a separate operational cell in the Cairo area, distinct from that of Walei Sinai, uh, and this gives rise to the possibility that. Uh, ISIS is preparing to expand its operations uh, far outside of Sinai, into the heart of Egypt, into Cairo. Um, and we may, in, in the coming months, actually see a new it uh, up here in Egypt. And this is uh, very concerning for the stability, not just in Sinai, but but for all of Egypt. Um, how am I on time?
0: That's. That, I mean, if you want a couple more minutes. That's uh,
2: just a couple other things sure. I'll note is, as far as like the insurgency measures taken by the government, um, there, some of these measures such as the uh, buffer zone in, in Rafa along the border with the Gaza Strip, uh, the curfew, uh, and then other collective punishment type measures uh, has a negative impact on the population uh, who already distrust the government and adds to the list of grievances of the local population. and this in turn pushes people that were possibly on the fence to go and actually join these organizations or if not join, they at least sympathize with Al Qaeda, Sinai more and uh, ISIS and their ideology. Um, I'll, I'll close that. Okay, great. Um, terrific.
0: Um, you, it was a very helpful introduction, very helpful describing what the actual, you know, what the actual campaign is looking like. And one of the things that I, I definitely want to come back to is, look, what does it mean to actually control a space as large as the Sinai. When you're talking about, they have the, you know, the the, um, the government, the regime has control of checkpoints and stuff like that. But around there, it's very hard. So, in order to win this insurgency, in order to bring peace to the Sinai, what's that going to look like for the state to control it? So, Jansen, thanks very much. Sam, if you would like to uh, round it off, and uh, sure, thanks very much.
3: Well, thanks, Lee, for um, organizing and hosting this panel, and. Uh, uh, The virtue of being last is, of course, that you learn everything that needs (laughs) to be learned from the two gentlemen that spoke before you. So I'll be very brief in in what I say, not to to repeat everything that was um, already said. Um, I'll basically raise three points here. The first point, uh, echoing what Muhtar has said, Egypt is facing four different security challenges. That's important to understand because the lack of understanding that they are different security challenges helps explain to us why the Egyptian regime has failed to deal with them. The fact that they cannot distinguish between those various threats and thus develop strategies to face them helps us understand why we're talking still about these threats today, two years after the military supposedly said that it would end the situation in Sinai, and the terrorism threat in a couple of days. So these four challenges, Muhtar um, has described them. The, there is a threat coming from Libya. Obviously, the fall of the Qaddafi regime there has meant that it's an ungovernable <laughs> territory. There are three affiliates of ISIS already existing in Libya. There's a civil war going on. There's an abundance of weapons. And it's a 1,000-kilometer border with Egypt, where the military historically has not had a strong presence. The army was always deployed to the east to fight Israel, and does not have the kind of local connections on the ground with the tribes there, that the tribes are already well-connected to their Libyan counterparts. So the threat there is serious. It's the one that can really lead to um, a serious destabilization of Egypt, especially if that threat is able to go through the Western desert and tap into the Islamist reservoir in the south of the country where we have to remember these are the territories that voted with the higher percentages for the Muslim Brotherhood, for the Salafis. Mm -hmm. These are the most, this is Islamist heartland in Egypt. The second threat is, of course, Wilayat Sinai. And here again, I'd stress, it is Wilayat Sinai. It's not a coincidence that when they gave their allegiance to ISIS, they didn't get the title Wilayat Egypt. They got the title Wilayat Sinai because they are a Sinai-based group. Of course, historically, their development has to do with uh, Salafi jihadists escaping the rule of Hamas in Gaza. It has to do with local jihadists in Egypt coming from the mainland to Sinai. But today, the organization for all intent and purpose is a Sinai-based organization. The third is obviously this threat of a terrorist organization. Muhtar mentioned Ajnaed Mosk. They, they had a number of attacks. The military was successful in killing their leader, but they can re-emerge again. They have been historically, or they have been affiliated with al-Qaeda, not with ISIS. But we also have there in the mainland this possibility of an ISIS mainland Egypt threat. We still don't know. No one has claimed the assassination of the Egypt's prosecutor general, Isham Barkat, a huge operation not conducted by a small group, and no one has claimed responsibility. Again, as, as was mentioned, the, um, the attack on the Italian consulate was claimed by ISIS itself, not by Wilayat Sinai. So we don't really know who's going, if we're going to see the emergence of a new group. And lastly, of course, as Muhtar mentioned, these uh, various groups, former Muslim Brotherhood members, supported by the Muslim Brotherhood in some cases, uh, the Revolutionary Punishment Anonymous, they've been conducting low-level warfare, basically. They're targeting security personnel. They're targeting electricity uh, power stations. They're, they're attempting to destroy the infrastructure. For a while, they were targeting economic, um, international corporations, KFC, uh, Vodafone, uh, various mobile companies and the such. So that's the kind of terrain or security challenges we're dealing with. Now let's move. My second point is about the Sinai. In the Sinai, of course, we have a number of negatives to put mildly. First, we have obviously a group that has a certain level of local support. They They are existing in a habitat that for a variety of reasons is welcoming to their existence. Historically, the Sinai has been neglected by the Egyptian state, Historically, the, the, the abuses by the Egyptian security forces have created a, um, a rejection of the Egyptian authorities. People there no longer feel that they are part of Egypt, that they belong or, or to that Egyptian nation. So they are tapping into that. And of course, helping that is the fact that the military tactics so far have been attempting to alienate the population, not win them. If, if the US implemented, General Petraeus implemented counterinsurgency in Iraq, the Egyptians are trying to do the exact opposite. They'll kill the whole population and thus kill the militants, basically. If you, if you go through the numbers that the Egyptian military announces every uh, day and, or every week about the number they've killed in Sinai, by now they've killed, what, one quarter maybe of the Sinai population? Of course, no one takes the numbers very seriously, but that's the kind of indiscriminate violence that's being used and that's helping ISIS there. They've also had a huge sophistication in terms of weapons. We've had two naval attacks so far. One of them was a defector from the military who killed his, his uh, co-sailors, got his ISIS team on it, and attempted to use the ship in an attack on Israel. It was foiled, and, and then the Air Force, the F-16s, ended that attack. And then you had this attack just, uh, what, two days ago, where they targeted a ship, uh, a navy ship, uh, in the sea. So we now know that they have advanced weaponry to target the Egyptian navy. They also have advanced weaponry to target the Egyptian air force. We've had incidents before of attacking Apache helicopters, of of various helicopters used by the military, and this is why what ended the the assault on the Sheikh Zayed after 10 hours was the F-16s and not the helicopters, because the, the Egyptian military knew very well that If the helicopters were sent, they would be automatically targeted by them. And we've also had a huge number of, at least huge in terms of advancement uh, techniques, of former military officers joining ISIS-Sinai. The guy running their military operations is a former, um, what would be the equivalent of the SEALs in Egypt, uh, his special forces in Egypt. Uh, we've had the, the ISIS, um, co- the ISIS um, terrorists that conducted the suicide attack on the Minister of Interior in uh, 2013, September or so of 2013, was a former officer. We have uh, about 10, 15 officers, mid-level officers that we know of, at least, that are there. So these guys are bringing in their expertise. They're not just your regular Joes who are turning into violence. These are guys that have had military training, that know what they're doing with these weapons. On the positive side, and there are some positives, one must say, it's a peninsula, meaning that at the end of the day, it might take you time, it might take you years, depending on how incompetent you are, but it's a peninsula. You can Mm -hmm. isolate it, you can close the doors from both sides and deal with it. So the the geography of the Sinai is not helping the terrorists in this. And this brings me to the second point of the positives, that there is both a capable and willing partner on the other side of the border, meaning Egypt is greatly benefiting from the fact that Israel is there on the border. For the first time, we're seeing extremely high-level cooperation on intelligence. One way, one might add, i.e., the Israelis are helping the Egyptians deal with the situation in Sinai. So this is, they're getting better intelligence because of the Israeli presence, they're getting better information monitoring and all of that. Lastly, and this does matter in a region where we've seen armies that are running all around, that are um, run away from battle as in Mosul or as in other armies around the region, the Egyptian army is fighting. It's not running away. It's not abandoning its post. It's not escaping from battle. This is a country that is not divided among sectarian or ethnic lines like Libya, Syria, or, or in Iraq. This is a country that has had a very strong sense of nationhood, that its army is willing to defend its post. And that, in a sense, is very important in battle. Now, my last point is about the U.S. policy towards Egypt and towards these challenges. Obviously, Egypt is important to the United States. Uh, We know all the the traditional reasons. The Suez Canal is there, and, of course, the threat from the Sinai to um, free passage in the Suez Canal is huge. We uh, it's borders Israel. It's uh, um, uh, the most populated country in the Arab world, and all of that. And in a sense, U.S. policy towards Egypt has been guided by this Cold War mentality. Ever since Dr. Kissinger came to Egypt in 1974, the idea was Egypt is a, the most important Arab country. We're going to bring Egypt out of the Soviet orbit, bring it to the American orbit. It will lead the region for peace, prosperity and everything. The reality is this is no longer the Egypt we're dealing with. Egypt is no longer a regional player that will be able to lead Palestinians and Israelis into some kind of peace process. It will not play an important role in the Sunni camp countering Iran. Egypt is no longer a regional player. It's really a playing field, meaning it's a country that is being a playing field that's being contested by other countries, by regional players, by local players, international players. It's no longer the, one of the competitors in the region. It's the prize in the region. And this requires an adjustment in U.S. policy towards Egypt. We no longer need to invest in an Egypt policy in order to help the Egyptians bring the Palestinians and Israelis to the negotiation table. We need to invest in an Egypt that doesn't follow the line of Iraq, Syria and others. We need to invest in an Egypt that does not become as the title of the discussion today Somalia on the Sam, right? that was
0: terrific. That was great. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple quick questions, then I w- do want to get into the ISIS issue. Um, first of all, those advanced weapons that have been showing up in Sinai, I believe the Israelis have said this is Hamas who fed them these weapons, or w- what, what do we know about that? I mean, are they from Hamas, or how did they
2: get there? Do you, I, I don't think we know for sure, okay. um, but Hamas, they, uh, they've been known to operate Cornet anti-tank guided missiles, and that's okay. what is being used in the Sinai. Okay. Uh, but it's also been used in Libya. Yeah. So uh, okay. it could be coming from either okay. place or both. Okay. All right. uh, we just we don't know okay, for sure. Good. That's the other question I wanted I mean, to ask about. To, to add oh, yeah.
3: on that, um, historically there have been a lot of weapon smuggling from Sudan to Egypt. That's right. historically speaking. Now, the situation in Libya changed that. Now, Libya is really the, the place that right. the weapons are coming from. There's an abundance of weapons there. And again, it's, it's an easy border. It's an open right. border. There are weapons coming from there. So I think there are, there are various routes whereby these weapons come from.
0: Um, okay, my question is why. I found it during your, when you were speaking, and you said they don't really, the Egyptian army... They don't really have any relations with the tribes out there in the western desert. They don't really know them. How is that possible? I mean, this is, an, a, a, this is a, a. I mean, this is at least one thing that the Syrian regimes, the Iraqi regimes, different regimes have usually been pretty good at having relationships with local tribes, but th- they have none with a neighbor that's that's been their neighbor forever. How is that possible?
3: I think it's, it's a number of factors. First, Egypt doesn't recognize the existence of tribes within it in the first place. I mean, uh, um, a famous Egyptian diplomat <laughs> in the 19, early 90s, Tassim Bashir, made a comment about the whole Arab world, about oh, right. that Egypt was the only nation state in the region. The others were all uh, tribes with flags, basically. It tells you something about the Egyptian view of oneself. It's the first country that became modern in the Arab world. It's a country that... That was the center of the idea of modernity in the region. So, so Egypt's Internet. self-sense in this uh, way prohibits it from recognizing the Is existence of that. With,
0: it's interesting. Is that another problem with the Sinai as well? Not in, just, it, in a sense, yes. Uh,
3: and, and of course, it helps in the, the fact that they are very minute in terms of population compared to the reality. I mean, Sinai as a whole has a million, a million and a half population. Right. Mersa the western desert, has much less than that, 200,000, 300,000. You're talking about Cairo has about 20 million people. I mean, in a yeah. sea like that, these tribes are not important. The other factor, of course, is that the western desert <clears throat> was never a security threat to Egypt. The army was deployed in the east to fight Israel. That was the, 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 where the wars were. That was where the threat was. Even after, I mean, the, the one instance where Egypt got involved to its western border was Sadat's attack on Libya in uh, 77. And that's a war that lasted for two days and that was over. So, so it hasn't kind of, uh, the Egyptian army hasn't developed the kind of infrastructure of relationship, building trust with the locals there in order to be able to build a counter.
1: Do we have any sense that that's happening now at all?
3: I mean, there, there's been a lot of meetings. Yeah, you. Know. Yeah, so,
1: the, you know, the interesting thing about the, the Western Desert, so specifically in Governorate governor, in New Valley, I mean, there, there really just isn't much there. The people who do inhabit the area are very, very close to the valley. It's, uh, they're practically not really from, from the Western Desert. The, the problem with the Western Desert area is more about we're not really sure um, to what extent the relationships are deep. So. At the superficial level, actually, yes, there is a a, tr- a tribal council um, that the government, in some way indirectly, has helped uh, spring up. They, they, you know, by giving them a, a former office of the NDP, for instance, things like that. So they play the the game. But the problem is, is that we don't know to what extent the tribal leaders uh, in matruh <clears throat> the same issue as it is in the Sinai, uh, they, they can actually influence their their tribes. And what has helped out the Egyptians there is the fact that there is a significant number of uh, valley uh, um, inhabitants, uh, Reifidin, uh as they call them, uh, uh, yeah, the immigrants. Um, and, and that, in a way, kind of helps balance out um, a lot of the, 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 the tribal's uh, power influence in Matruh, uh, gives, uh, obviously, this, the, the, the core state and the military um, a kind of a, uh, an ally uh, there that they can rely on, um, and historically, of course, uh, trade with Libya has helped kind of make sure that this area at least has a semblance of, of decent uh, economic activi- activity. Uh, you know, I've always went to Marsa Matrouh growing up, and, uh, you know, the Libya there was, was always, you know, the place uh. where you can get the uh, cheap imported stuff from, Lib- from, from Europe. Um, but the problem was, uh, was Marsa Matrouh is something I, I still have yet to publish uh, on, so but it, it should come out in some form before the end of the year. Um, is that you do have a strong Salafi presence there historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we've had seen almost coincidentally, as with the Sinai, a of, uh, the Salafization of the Bedou um, in their customs, in their, in their uh, uh, religiosity. And the uh, Salafi Dawah of Alexandria, um, the, the strongest satellite uh, uh, presence that it had historically has been in Matruh. And in August of 2013, We kind of got a very small glimpse into the abyss, if you will. Um, The the head leader of um, the Salafi Dawah in Matrouh, his name is Sheikh Ali Ghallab. Don't quote me on this. I may be mixing his name a little bit. Mm -hmm. Ali Ghallab, he stood in front of the Matrouh train station and summarizing his very fiery speech, this is on the day of Rabah, said we'll close all the roads from here to Alexandria. There will be no police. There will be no business. Everything will be shut down. And of course, there were some violent clashes there. Um, and uh, a, a number of people died, at least four or so. Um, and, and again, it's, it's been mostly kind of a strike of luck. I, I actually want to give the military a little bit of credit there. Uh, but again, I, I think it's because of these, mm. uh, you know, these factors that there's just so many people from the Nile Valley, um, that there is a little bit of economic activity. The governor of uh, Matruh before the revolution um, as, as you know anyone from Egypt knows this anecdotally there's always you know, this one good governor that everyone tries to remember <laughs> this was the guy who brought McDonald's to the beach uh, so that's pretty impressive um, you know and it, so, so, so anyways th- they had some economic um, uh, uh, activity and, and, and the military was actually and this is actually a very interesting case study and, that, and that's why I've, I've gotten interested in it and, and, and we'll have something out um, summarizing the story which, which unfortunately hasn't really been out there um, they, they acted almost 180 degrees different from the way they acted in the Sinai. Uh, very quickly, they sat down. Uh, okay, uh, who's afflicted? We're going to give you blood money. Settle down. We're not, you know, l- let's, let's not flare things up. Let's not, let's not cause any problems. Um, and sure enough, they were able to exert influence on the Sadafi Dawa sheikh who was standing there and deviating from the flock uh, of the da'wah uh, and, and basically threatening that we're going to do all that you've ever feared will happen. And um, they got to him, and they convinced him that you know, the Brotherhood was trying to use him um, as a tool to uh, destabilize the governorate. And uh, within a month, he was standing in a celebration on Matruh uh, National Day and thanking the military intelligence of the governor for standing up for the people, so in a way they got to him. You know, they either scared the, the living, you know, out of him. Well, look,
0: you, you, you said they were playing, they were paying blood money, and they were dealing with. Look, what, why isn't this then? It, it seems that in a sense, uh, the state does know in some ways how to deal.
1: Yeah.
0: How to, because one of the things that struck me when the three of you were speaking uh, in your opening remarks, you kept coming back to the idea of revenge. Yeah. Right. You all kept coming back to the idea of revenge, and I, w- w- without turning this into a, uh, an anthropological exercise, but clearly revenge is, is an aspect of Egyptian culture. So why does the state, why does the army go into Sinai the way it does that you were describing, Sam, and it's proud of the indiscriminate uh, casualties that it racks up? Why can't it do the same thing that Muhtar is describing here and Matru? Why? What's, what's the issue? Sam, actually, if you want to start with this, go then we'll... Uh, yeah, then, then we'll actually go... And Jansen, I'm going to ask you... Uh, again, just like in terms of... Even in this way, in terms of what, th- what the state is... What the state is getting wrong about Egyptian society. Because it seems in some ways that's what you're describing, and that's what Muhtar said went right in, in the desert.
3: Um, partly, I think they don't know anything else but to shoot indiscriminately. I mean... Um, that's what they've been trained to do. The level of training competency of the troops is highly questionable, to say the least. So on on the one hand, that's the very nature of of the kind of of training that these guys have had. But I also think partly it's, um, there is a push for such violence, such um, indiscriminate killing of people in the Sinai inside mainland Egypt by the population at large. Um, I mean, if the military kills 10, the kind of reactions you get in Egypt, why didn't they kill 100? Um, I've I've heard, I mean, it's the the fight against the Muslim Brotherhood, against largely Islamists in Egypt, is a fight to the death. And the population that uh, rejected the Muslim Brotherhood's rule, whatever percentage we will ascribe to each side, there is a clear divide today in Egypt, and, I mean, I, I remember in the early days the song that was, uh, uh, that was sang that we are a peoples and you are a people. We're not even the same people any longer. So there is this, mm. I don't want to use the word fascist, but there is this push inside Egypt for indiscriminate violence. Um, people are unhappy. They think the army is too weak in the way that it deals with the Sinai. Mm. And the pressure is actually on the military to be harder. Mm. Uh, you you remove people from uh, uh, next to the Rafah crossing, remove all of Sinai, and just bomb the whole place until you kill all the terrorists. Oh. That's a typical attitude to get in Egypt. Military... And I think it's a, oh, Okay, I'm sorry. It's also an attitude inside the troops, hmm. meaning um, um, the regular soldiers and and low level officers are the ones being killed in the battlefield, and they're still being killed, and the attacks are continuing, and there's no solution. Egypt uh, did a unified command for the first time for, uh, on the Sinai, appointing the former head of the Third Army to run the whole of Sinai. Nothing has happened. They've, uh, they've killed so many people, nothing has happened. So there's a lot of pressure from the low ranks of t- towards the generals, and of right. course towards the top general, President Sisi. Be tough, do something. Be, be more violent towards yeah. them. We need to defeat that, right?
2: Interesting. Jansen. And, yeah, if know. I can add, yeah, yeah. In, in Sinai and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I think this is still the case that, that the Bedouins are not allowed into the military. Yeah. And, and so with the popu- the majority of the population in the Sinai being Bedouin, they're not allowed to be part of this, mm-hmm. this organization yeah. that is there to try and prevent the terrorists. And so a lot of the population views the military as like an occupying force Mm. because they're all uh, egyptians from the mainland and then uh, the those inside the military you know they view anyone out there as a possible threat Mm. uh, you know knowing that you know any of them could be a terrorist and so they're very quick to open fire uh, very quick to um, you know think the worst of anyone approaching them and so that just adds to the the, the Situation yeah, that right, we have there today, mm-hmm. um, Mokhtar, I wanted to ask, we'll come back to something
0: you said, and then we'll, we'll go through another round like this. Um, how did the how did the Bedou become Salafist? How did this happen? How long has this been going on? What what did the process look like? Is this relatively recent, or because it it seems a little it, it seems a little um, contradictory, right? That a yeah. that a Bedouin culture would become well, I
1: mean, t- to be honest, I'm not, you know, an expert on it. I don't think... There, I've only come across one paper... Uh, well, there's one paper on the Sinai that was recently put out uh, by uh, Mara Refkin, who's uh, a scholar in, um, in Yale, I believe. But Before that, actually, a government-sponsored uh, study uh, by the uh, Prime Minister's office in 2010, on mostly even focusing on the Western Desert. Um, but in, 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 in short... Um, it's a it's a very slow process of proselytization. I'll just stick with uh, what I know most, and that's the Western Desert. Uh, there was a very slow process of proselytization. Um, a lot of the, um, the the younger members of of these <laughs> tribes, um, you know, uh, kind of tracked well, if you will, with with <clears throat> um, so, uh, Salafi teachings. Again, you had groups like the Salafi Dao of Alexandria. So again, we have a, a very so uh, who,
0: who's proselyt- is that it? Who's proselytizing man a Sheikh from Alexandria or Cairo will go and say, "We can get these guys on our side and." Most likely, you need to or, understand, or, 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 or
1: or people or people who are leaving to go in, uh, the people who are from these Bedouin communities being exposed to these ideas in mainland Egypt. But if I, if I focus again on, on, on what I, I know <coughs> a little bit best about, uh, you know, in the case of the Salafi Dawah, um, they kind of looked at. Um, these Bedouins, um, their practices and their customs, are many of them are actually contradictory of the teachings of Islam. And so in a way, there was, there was always a, a small sense, I can't say it's urgency, but a, a sense of importance um, uh, that they gave uh, to this. And we still see this to this day um, to, you know, uh, he, was, he was actually heavily criticized for this, and it's actually quite uh, messed up, um, uh, Sheikh um, Yasser Burhami. Uh, you know, he, one of his sermons in Matruh uh, about a year ago, uh, in passing, you know, he, he was saying something along the lines of, you know, well, you know, we understand that, you know, the age of marriage here is going to be lower, you know, than what's legal and stuff like that. Um, and so they even try to find a way to accommodate some of the, the things that the, the Bedouins keep to, keep, uh, keep to heart um, and uh, at the same time, and again, ensure um, that they're following the, um, the Salafi teachings. But I can't. I, I can't. Um, you know, it's this, this something that requires a little bit more study. I can't actually say, well, what exactly um, eventually uh, caused the replacement of, uh, you know, Bedouin um, uh, 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 jurisprudence. Uh, not jurisprudence. Sorry, litigation. Uh, the, the 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 traditional litigation was Setaphi mm-hmm. litigation. Again, some some literature is out there. But I'm not an expert on it. But when we look at the implications of that, though. Currently, in a place like the Western Desert area of Matruh, um, you actually have many of the tribal elders. Um, people are very practical, and not really with the whole you know Salafi thing. And as I said, it's the younger people, and that creates a very distinct problem. To an extent, it exists in the Sinai. Although the problem with the Sinai is that just the the tribal leadership is just so superficial. Um, but the distinct problem it creates is that it's, it's, there is this double identity um, where. The, the Salafi youth who's a member of the tribe even if the tribe is well functioning is at the end of the day going to have more loyalty for very obvious reasons mm-hmm. to that Salafi ideology than his tribal elder. So that's something if you go to Matruh and you, and you, and you speak to mm-hmm. people that's, that's not a problem that they, that they bring up. That's what we saw in Matruh right after Morsi's ouster is that even some of the elder sheikhs um, religious sheikhs who told them to stop the, 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 yeah. the, the youth didn't listen. Uh, you know, they just said, well, you know, you're mm. with the sultans. Or, the, you know, the, the tribes are, are bought and paid for um, by, by the government. So, anyway, so, yes, the, some Egyptian Salafis have had an interest mm. in, in spreading this uh, in, in the Bedouin. Um, but more importantly, for, for our purposes here, is that it's significantly the youth sector um, that right. has been very much influenced by this ideology. Um, uh,
3: if I can... Yes, uh, Yes, yeah, please. Um, Salafism came and Islamism came to the desert through modernity. Meaning it's when the Egyptian state began to modernize those areas, Mm. send teachers, send doctors. Ah. The doctors, teachers, locals, I mean bureaucrats working in the civil service that belonged already in the mainland to the Muslim Brotherhood or to other more radical groups, then brought their ideology. It's especially the role of teachers that ended up in Harish, in Sheikh Zuweid, in Mersa in those places. That's very important to look at in how those places were slowly Salafized. Mm. In that sense, it's the more modernized elements within Bedouin culture that became Salafized right. and not the guys back in the villages. Not the super who traditional guys. Yeah, who here. didn't go to the schools. Right. It's the guys that were in a sense, caught in between, between the new emerging cities in those deserts mm. and between their local um, uh, tribal connections. It's the, the alienated youth in the middle that had taken part in modernization but not completely mm. become modern men that you can tie to this growth mm. of Islamism. Why don't,
0: take, why don't they take the Bedouins into the military? Because they don't trust them. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, what you're describing. What you're describing is the the government has effectively created a second state that is now a Salafi state, basically. Muqtad, were you going to. Just real quickly, uh, nothing too significant.
1: But this is so pervasive um, that uh, mainland origin Egyptians who are from Matruh, just because now their IDs say Matruh, they suffer the same treatment, even though they're not Bedouin. Huh. And they can prove and they can tell them that we're actually from you know, Behera, we're actually from Khafre Sheik. It's just so pervasive. Sorry, it's just a tangential no. comment. But, yeah.
3: I mean, especially in the Sinai, it's um, the Sinai was obviously occupied by Israel starting 67 until, not 73, until 82, when the Israelis finally withdrew from most of the Sinai. Um, and during that period, the Egyptian state developed a mistrust of the Bedouins. The fact that a number of Bedouins oh, yeah, yeah, obviously yeah, right. coexisted with Israel. Whether right. they cooperated, what this, what's the meaning of collaboration? That's all complicated right. questions. But the fact that those tribes existed under Israeli rule for 15 yeah, years, yeah, right, right. then there's that question of loyalty that has always been there in the Egyptian. Is
0: mind. that why the Israelis have better intelligence about the Sinai now? <laughs> Probably. That they still have. No, it makes sense. Those yeah. networks would still exist. That they yeah. have. Um, Let me come back to the question that I want to ask about ISIS. So, first of all, what does it mean to become part of ISIS? Look, because it's been my impression with some ways is that, you know, like with al-Qaeda, right, you sort of pledge allegiance and they send you the membership cards and T-shirts and stuff like that. And maybe you get some money, maybe someone raises money from you. But you're not necessarily taking orders from a cave, from a guy in a cave in Waziristan. ISIS, what does it mean to be, what does it mean that this is now Walayat Sinai, that this is a part of ISIS? Jansen, yeah, do you want to?
2: Yeah, what we've seen since their incorporation into ISIS back in November is, you know, originally I was, I was debating this. I was like, okay, well, what does it mean? I mean, Ansar Baed al-Maktis was already, already one of the, it was the deadliest group in Egypt before pledging to ISIS. So what's going to change? But... Over time, we saw that they started taking on the same tactics. Uh, I, I mentioned the uh, house-born IEDs. Well, right. That's a tactic that ISIS in Iraq uh, employed extensively. Um, you know, we saw beheadings uh, significantly increase pri- just prior to um, their pledge of allegiance and then following that. Uh, and then we've seen their capabilities as far as like constructing, uh, you know, massive. Um, vehicle-borne IEDs, um, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of it's just the, the techniques, the tactics they use. So what happens? Do they send those ISIS
0: headquarters in Raqqa? Do they send someone to? Uh,
2: we don't know for sure, um, but I think that, I think they would have had to have somebody uh, come with and, and give them hands-on experience. It's not just like, you know, over email, sending instructions on how mm-hmm. to create an effective... IED. I mean,
0: one way that you would imagine, I'll, but I mean, one way you would imagine that some of the information is transmitted is that we know that there are plenty of Egyptian fighters in, in Syria. And so some of the guys who are coming back, <clears throat> they know different things. Um, you know, I would imagine that's one way. Yeah, to, in,
2: in March of 2014, March of fourteen, um, Ansar Vedo matched at the time, Um, gave eulogies on several other fighters that had been killed. And there were several of them which they specifically identified as having fought jihad in Iraq or Syria. And so we know for a fact that there were a number of fighters that went, fought, and had returned and joined the group. So uh, certainly there's there's more than just those as well. Sam, do you want to?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big question what it means to be ISIS. In a sense, you're getting the glory of the name, uh, and it is a well. refined no, name. No, that's what I mean, and, and it
0: was the same with al-Qaeda. It's a, I guess that's what I mean. How much of this is branding, right? Because because he, the Obama White House in lots of ways has made ISIS um, the, the key issue, what it perceives as a vital threat to U.S. security, and presumably that is... That's here in the United States, that they would, some guys, the few Americans who were fighting there would come back, or that this is becoming larger and larger. The different attacks are now being claimed by ISIS. So I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. How much of this is simply branding, and how much of it is really, there's some sort of organized larger institution or, or body? To, but I, you're right, yeah. to this kind of person, it's a glorious name. So yeah, to be associated I mean, with ISIS, it's. It's
3: We uh, think, I mean, right. uh, <laughs> After years of after eighty five years or eighty seven years of the Muslim Brotherhood, it's still where it began. It's out of power, being persecuted. After years of Salafi education, trying to change the Egyptians, the Egyptians are still the same people. After years of, I mean, Ayman Zawahiri has been fighting jihad against the Egyptian regime since nineteen sixty four when he joined the first. Jihad, you said. Wow. And where is Ayman al-Zawahri today? Well, in a cave in Afghanistan or a yeah. villa in Pakistan, but <laughs> yeah. besides the point. In both cases, he's not anywhere. He's not doing anything. But right. these kids, they take over Mosul, they declare a caliphate, they control a huge territory, not in some desert of Afghanistan that no one has heard of or cares about, not in Somalia, in the heartland of the Islamic caliphate, the historical caliphate, mm. between Baghdad and Damascus. This is where the whole story is. So that's a huge brand for mm. anyone. That's, that's the cool group to be part of these mm. days. There have been various reports in the Egyptian media. Of course, nothing in the Egyptian media should be taken without 10 grains of salt, to say the least. But about, for example, being, people being trained by ISIS in Libya. So various members from Sinai mm. would go to Libya and be trained there. Again, how accurate it is? We don't know. As As Jansen mentioned, uh, a number of ISIS uh, Sinai, related Sinai fighters had already fought in Syria. Uh, one of them, for example, the military officer who conducted, or the police officer who uh, who did the suicide attack on the minister of interior, he had fought in Syria. So, so there are all those links. This was fighters. a police officer. Who yes, a former the, police oh, wow, okay. officer, um, mid level officer, mm-hmm. and uh, so you've got those. Attacks. I mean, those those kinds of links being there. But the big question, I think, that that, and this is where I think we have a disagreement about Sheikh Zawid, is um, what it actually means to be ISIS in the sense of, yes, you learn the military techniques, but ISIS is distinguished by, A, its brutality, and we haven't seen that in Sinai. So there have been okay. attacks, punishment against civilians that are accused of cooperation with the military. But to a large extent, they've tried to win the local population and not make them hate them. So it's not the ISIS types. Mm. It's not sending the heads in boxes to the, the tribal leaders to tell them, right. well, learn that lesson. They haven't adopted that brutality that we know about ISIS. So it, it makes you, it's a it's a big question whether it's, it does mean anything more than just giving an allegiance and getting some military training. Interesting.
0: What do you wanna?
1: Yeah, it's it, you know it, it's something yeah that you've uh, always been thinking about and uh, I think I think when it comes to them e- there is also a um, an ideological component in the sense that if one would assume that they're rational actors and if, if I were to put on my ABM hat. Uh, there isn't really much of a strategic vision for what ABM all There isn't really much of a strategic vision for what I'm doing. I mean, am I really going to, you know, declare an emirate in the Sinai? Is that really in the realm of the possibility of the possible? One of the the biggest reasons or, or sorry, one of the biggest events that triggered um, you know, ABM to put out all that it has on killing the army and declaring uh, you know, the army more and more of an enemy is a political event that happens in Cairo. Um, so are they there for the Sinai, or are they there for Egypt? And I think they're somewhere in between. Uh, torn is probably, that's not the best word to use, but I'll use it for, for our purposes here. And in a way, ISIS is kind of a, a, a path that, that you know, can, can give them that strategic guidance, strategic vision. But the problem mm. is, is that they can't actually implement uh, what an ISIS affiliate is supposed to do. And so they're going to be stuck in between. And in a way, if, if I would guess that ISIS is exerting influence, it's perhaps against um, Ansar al-Maqdis' own um, inclinations of what it should be immediately doing. I mean, there isn't any strategic value to um, you know, st- trying to start operations west of Suez. I mean, that doesn't make sense if you're trying to consolidate your control right. and grip in northeastern North Sinai uh, or to invest money in an attack in the western desert and, and so on. Um, so I think in a way the ISIS pledge is perhaps many of them are, trying to, are moving in the direction of adopting a, 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 a worldview that makes them believe that they are to monopolize the Egyptian jihad. They are meant to be the Egyptian group and not just the Sinai group. Mm. And so it's very interesting, and, and we'll continue to see the implications of this, I think, for, for, for months, if not years, uh, to come.
0: Uh, before we... I am going to open it up for questions in a few minutes. But before we do that, though, I just wanted to um, talk about... actually talk about how this, the particular campaign in the Sinai, have the Egyptian <coughs> military wins it. We're, we're kind of at a paradoxical moment. I think it was you, Jansen, who was saying... Um, or maybe it was you, and I think it was you, who was saying that uh, finally they started uh, airstrikes on on one of the groups in Sinai, or maybe it was you, Sam. And it struck me that this is actually, you compared it to uh, the surge, you compared it to the surge, but we're at a moment right now where that's what the United States is doing, right? Where the United States is flying... uh, Flying air support, air support of, you know, Iraqi forces and hitting ISIS. We're not running counterinsurgency campaigns. This White House. So what advice, and remember this administration for a long time didn't want to give the Egyptian military certain things that it said it was going to give, like planes, like helicopters. Um, What argument does the administration have at this point saying, no, those aren't going to work if that's precisely what the White House is doing, fighting the same kind of war instead of when we look and we say, no, it's better if you fight a counterinsurgency campaign. What's the argument that this administration or perhaps the next administration needs to make to a longtime ally, even though you're right, it's, not, it's a very interesting point, you're saying it's not the same Egypt, but in order to help this Egypt uh, at least quell this campaign in the Sinai What does it it say? What does it do? Sam, if you could start with that.
3: Sure. (coughs) Obviously, there's a huge level of mistrust between the Egyptian regime and the current U.S. administration. Um, The regime believes that the administration was allied to the Muslim Brotherhood, that it continues to support the Muslim Brotherhood in some shape or form, that the U.S., uh, they're very angry at the withholding of military equipment Mm -hmm. following the coup. There are a number of concerns that the Egyptian regime has had and and problems they have with the U.S. administration. So there is no trust towards the Obama administration that these are friends. However, there's a lot of trust and, and friendship with the U.S. military, meaning even when the Egyptian regime was having their open clash with the Obama administration, they always believed, rightly or wrongly, that the Pentagon was on their side that the Pentagon understood the situation, that the Pentagon was willing to to invest in an Egypt relationship. So any form of advice under the current administration and help would have to come without the politicians. Without Obama and John Kerry, it would have to be channeled through, if we're aiming for the Egyptians really to change their behavior, it would have to come through the defense channel Mm. and not the political channel. So that's concerning the the mechanism. Um, Obviously, Egypt needs a reassessment of the situation. Uh, They've been doing the same thing repeatedly, and they've been getting the same results. No surprise. They need a different strategy. Now, how can they develop the strategy? There are obviously a lot of technical military issues here beyond my understandings of the issues. But we obviously, they they need uh, a mechanism to seal the Sinai in the sense of the first step is to make sure that we don't get more attacks inside Egypt proper. That's ISIS and Sinai is not able to penetrate and conduct these attacks west of the Suez Canal. Number two, of course, or more importantly, even, we need to protect the Suez Canal. We're going to get the opening of the new canal as Egypt builds it um, in a week or August, less. August yeah. 6th. August 6th, so, so uh, two weeks. So we're going to have, this might be an opportunity, this might be an event that we would witness an mm. attack. We need to remember, 10 percent of world trade goes through the Suez Canal. That's if there is a blockade of that canal, a ship is in there. This is something very serious. Um, oil to Europe. This is something. I mean, that could affect the whole world, to say the least. Um, they need to develop a strategy to win the local population. We've had a lot of news about the tribes coming together to f- create a fighting force against ISIS. Nothing has actually come out of this, and most of it has been exaggerated games in the media. But we need a mechanism whereby the locals in the Sinai would be empowered enough to fight that enemy from within.
0: Jensen, do you want to... Well how does, this, how, does this, how does this campaign end successfully for, for a long-time American ally?
2: Yeah, not, not just end generally. How does it end well? Well, I, I don't have an answer for that, for how it ends well, but I, I think... There, there are steps that we can do to absolutely improve it. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what we did uh, March or April when we uh, reestablished the, uh, the military aid to, to Egypt, the uh, 1.3 billion dollars. What they did, they, they, got rid of um, the loan guarantees, um, which means Egypt can no. Uh, this will takes effect in after 2018, but they can no longer use advancements on the loans to make large purchases, which means they're going to have less money to buy mm-hmm. the larger items like the F-16s, um, tanks. And then they also uh, divided into, I believe it was four different categories that the money would be you know, going towards. Mm-hmm. And one of those categories was specifically counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. So I think that's a good step uh, towards kind of right. helping um, kind of put our money where we believe it's going to be, best used uh, for counterinsurgency in the Senate. Um, but there's, there's certainly other steps the Egyptian military can take, like ending uh, some of these uh, collective punishment measures right. that they've implemented in the Senate. It was very
0: interesting what Sam was saying before, which seems to me an enormous issue. It's like there's lots of pressure coming both from Egyptian society, uh, from Cairo in particular, and from within the military itself to come down hard on... Uh, on the, on the militants, on the Islamists, that's tough. How the military, how even competent, how even a competent military would manage that. Um, Muhtar, would you like to...
1: Yeah, real, real quickly, because you know, of, of our time, you know, of course, you know, we have the strategic dialogue um, coming up. Um, you know, I'm hoping it will be the first of uh, a few over the next couple of years. I think messaging still to this day has uh, a role to play. Um, we need to be able to send a strong message as plainly obvious as it says we cannot ignore the uncomfortable reality of the psyche um of of the Egyptians uh, their legitimacy is not in question as far as we're concerned that uh, we don't have plans to install the Muslim Brotherhood yes we disagree that the Muslim uh, we disagree on whether or not the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization but we do acknowledge that no they're not the best promise for Egyptian democracy right. so i think we we're still at the stage where this needs to be uh, repeated and i think also framing Our concerns about this political dimension, collective punishment, perhaps in a way, uh, maybe what I'm saying is fanciful, but I think maybe revisiting how we frame things. Of course, we tell them that we recognize that this is not their first rodeo uh, dealing with an Islamist insurgency. And if anything, they should be learning from the lessons of the 1990s. I mean, the condition is so bad that you can actually learn from the 1990s. What what,
0: what do you learn from the 1990s? Because there's people, the argument they would make is they'd say, and maybe not incorrectly, they would say no you 'd understand it was the fact that Hosni Mubarak uh, picked everyone up, put him in jail, collective punishment. I mean there are people who would make that, or even others would say no that 's why this served that 's why there 's still crazy jihadis fighting in egypt
1: in short, and uh, Sam is, is a better expert on me than this. He, he actually lived through this time period uh, 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 and, and anyways. Um, in short, uh, you know, they could tell their brother and jihadi apart. Uh, they weren't other incomplete idiots. Of course, yeah. the, the Muslim Brotherhood at the time wasn't engaged in this activity. Of course, they yeah. pressed on the Muslim Brother from time to time. But no, not everyone was being picked up, uh, put, in, put in, in, in the same jail for the same reason. Uh, yeah. uh, it was the exception. Of course, sometimes the Brotherhood you know, gets the, uh, the, the, the twist of the arm. Um, eventually, and, and, and this, some people might find this controversial and I uh, won't like to admit to it, but from conversations I've had with Sadafis, uh, p- former, member, no, former members of the Islamic group who were formerly involved, the Islamic group has changed significantly now, is that actually torture did start to slightly change uh, towards the end. What uh, do you mean? Uh, they started to have conjugal visits. Uh, they started oh. to uh, lessen the torture. Um, they, 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 didn't, they, they, they had come to the conclusion oh. that they just simply can't leave these people languishing in there indefinitely. And of course, anecdotally, we know the process of the the de-radicalization and Mm -hmm. the visitations in prison. And so at least at some level, they were invested in the idea of recognizing that they need to figure out a way to to handle this. And Mubarak's regime was all of its problems and and all of this Mm. had come, frankly, to a a recipe that hasn't actually worked out historically in Mm. countries that have to deal. I think the Egyptian insurgency of the 1990s is one of the few... Insurgencies that were actually successfully built.
3: (laughs) So why why isn't there that
0: institutional memory in the military or the security services? Because
3: the military was not involved in the South. That's number one. I mean, Mubarak did not use collective punishment against the South of Egypt. Now, you might argue that's because it's a huge part of the population, because it's accepted as part of the nation, not like the Sinai, or for whatever reason. On the contrary... People in the South were actually, the tribes, if we can use the term, were actually armed in order for them to hunt down the terrorists in the South. So you created a a habitat that was not welcoming of the terrorists, that was pushing them out. Number two, the the jihadis, if we can call them that, in the South, Jama'a Islamiyah, did not start off as jihadis. Jama'a Islamiyah was really a student-based organization, a Salafi organization, that found itself on the path of violence through its alliance with uh, the Islamic Jihad of Ayman Zawahiri, Abu Dzumar, and its assassination of Sadat. After that, it was a matter of of, uh, the the regime killing their leaders, so they strike back and you had the insurgency. But it does not start off with the the absolute takfir of society. Yes, they declared the ruler an unbeliever but they disagreed with Zawahri and with Islamic Jihad on the declaration of the military and the police as unbelievers. So it's, it's a different brand of mm-hmm. Islamism in the sense that the regime was fighting there.
0: Um, so let's see if there are any questions. Does anyone have any? Um, sir, in the first row? Can you hold on just one second? Um, let's just see if we can get a microphone. And then if you would um, stand and also uh, keep it short, please.
2: Talk about tourism, about foreign exchange. What's happened to the Christian community since we're hearing uh, the slaughter of Christians in the Middle
3: East? And took the op-ed last year from Langlade, the World Jewish Congress, and the States, to cries the world that Christians are being slaughtered. But, Sam, do you uh, want to? Sure. Um, I mean, briefly, the economy. Uh, tourism is better than it was in 2011, 2012, but still not up to the levels of uh, prior to the revolution, where it really was a major contributor to the Egyptian economy. There's also a change in the nature or the nationalities of tourists that you're getting. You're getting more Russian tourists who spend much less money. You're not getting the kind of Western tourists that you want, who who spend really the money and bring the, the economy back on its feet. Um, There's been, uh, the economic summit was a success back in March, uh, but we haven't seen any actual foreign investment, a lot of it entering the country. Uh, That's a concern on the long run. The Egyptians, um, we've had a very high inflation rate. Mm. Uh, We have, I mean, this is a popular, unemployment is extremely high. There are a lot of these problems. You need a a very good 5% growth rate in order to make sure that the population is not at the point of uh, breaking out in rebellion again, in revolution again. Can I
0: ask him? Um, I mean, what, is the ch- what are the chances of foreign direct investment? Like, what, is it, what needs I mean, to happen before people uh, will come back in there and say, oh, this is a reasonable. The,
3: the government has been doing some steps in terms of um, changing a bit in the legal framework, making it harder for people. You used to have the cases of people going to court-raising cases about corruption in foreign companies, and the government uh, being forced by court order to cancel the privatization deal, for example. After 10 years, after the company had been privatized doing business and all, so there was a lack of um, confidence in the stability of the economic system in this sense. That's beginning to be changed. However, there's there's, and of course, you've had a bit of liberalizing in the economy in the sense of removing some of the subsidies. However, this is the military has also taken a much larger share of the economy than previously. We've had ah. a huge expansion really, in that's... the projects being given directly to the military, that um, private companies are not able to mm. compete in government contracts, that all the contracts are given automatically to the military. And that's a problem, obviously, for free economics that we believe in. On, on the Christians... Um, Obviously, the Christians in Egypt are facing a different challenge from the Christians in Iraq and Syria, where it's really eradication that they're facing. Uh, In Egypt, you have official discrimination by the government in form of regulations um, that make it extremely hard to build churches, for example. Um, Discrimination against Christians in government appointments. You don't have a single Christian in the Egyptian intelligence not in the Egyptian uh, state security, 1% cap on Christians in the army and the police force, about 1.75% in the judiciary, um, less than that in the foreign service. So you have those official discriminatory policies. You also have a huge problem in attacks happening on the local level, in the villages. We've had an attack in the village, for example, of the 13 of the 21 victims of ISIS in Libya, that the cops who were beheaded. Uh, President Sisi promised to build a church um, in their village, where they had the village they had come from, and the mob basically gathered and said, we won't allow this church in our village. So you get these kinds of attacks that no one gets punished for, which creates, of course, a culture of impunity, leading to a culture of encouragement. Hey, let's attack the Christians, nothing will, is going to happen to us, and more so, we're going to get our demands met. We, you get instances of churches being told, you're not supposed to have a bell. You're not supposed to have uh, any cross on top of the church, no dome, no tower, these kinds of regulations that Salafis are trying to impose on the local level. So it's, it's still a very challenging situation for the Christians of Egypt.
0: Thanks, Uh another, another question? Hi. Oh, okay, do you, you have a question? Is that microphone working? I got, I, got I, the, I'm the microphone, it. so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Get the sure. microphone away from him now. <laughs>
2: I'm Charlie, and I work with Jansen at Institute for Study of War. <laughs> do you think that the CC regime genuinely wants to solve the problems in North Sinai, or does this war on terrorism contribute to his legitimacy?
0: Uh, that's, why, do you, why don't you start with that, and then that's an interesting question. Okay. Yeah,
2: I, I think it's, it's absolutely in CC's uh, interest. Uh, one, just because he doesn't want it to spread. So obviously he's going to try and contain it. But he also has uh, this military relationship with with Israel that he's he's concerned about, and so for that as well, uh, he wants to stamp out stamp this out. However, that plays into the hands of the jihadists in in the Sinai because they, they put it in those terms as as Sisi is the protector of Israel, which you know tries to galvanize the the jihadist support in the Sinai. But it's absolutely in his in his interest. Um, Stamp out the insurgency there.
0: But this is actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you put it like that because that's something I wanted to raise. I mean, w- w- Sam, you mentioned this as well. How you know, very elegantly, the Sinai is a peninsula, and you can close it off, and you have two different sides. And the Israelis have been very helpful. And if this is part, if this is partly a rallying cry for, this is partly a rallying cry for the jihadis. Is this also a problem? elsewhere in Egypt? I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it's, it's seemed to me that it would be a problem if, it's, if this becomes, a, if this becomes a, uh, a phrase that's echoed in Cairo as well, that Sisi is helping protect the Israelis from, you know, Sam and what's the... I
3: mean... Egyptians of all stripes, political stripes, Islamists, whatever the Western press calls liberals, whatever, share a common theme of antisemitism. That's not news to anyone who's following Egyptian politics or Arab politics in general. Antisemitism is, is uh, widespread in Egypt. When, when the coup take, took place, it was a favorite tool of the Islamists to claim, until today, that Sisi is actually Jewish. His mother is supposedly a Moroccan Jew. And, of course, the pro-regime people claim that Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, is himself a Jew. So, so the fact that that's the way of, of cursing the others that he, they're, they're Jews, that's the way to, to talk about them. Um, I think the military has played it smartly so far. They've been having huge cooperation with Israel, um, but they didn't have any public meetings with the Israelis. Hmm. Mubarak used to meet... Uh, BB used to meet Israeli politicians publicly. They'd come to Cairo, and that created a confusion. On the one hand, the state media was saying, oh, those Jews' conspiracy trying to control the world and all of that, while they see the president meeting them. So which is it? This is not playing that game. He's not stopped the anti-Semitism in the media. It's still there. But he's not had the public meetings with the Israelis that would hurt his popularity inside Egypt.
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, I More think every, every Islamist is waiting for that handshake in a picture. <laughs> yeah. uh, Israeli flag in the background. Yeah, uh, really not, not much to add. Yeah, I just want to emphasize, you know, a lot of people start to use rhetoric like they're manufacturing the terrorists. Of course, we can talk about the situation helping, uh, th- their policies help exacerbate the situation and things along those lines. But I think they're in a position where um, the situation as it stands isn't, it is actually hurting their legitimacy just because of how... I'm sorry, you're hurting his legitimacy there. CCs. Oh, okay. Uh, just, and, and really, it's just because of how typical they are in their rhetoric, but going overboard. Uh, you know, his, his, when, when, the, when the July 1st attack happened, he didn't just say, we're going to handle this, you know, this is going to happen. He said, the situation is, is beyond, uh, I'm paraphrasing, it's beyond secure. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like very, in some words, it's like, very secure. like there's nothing happening, <laughs> you know. So that's that's actually a very big problem, I think, with uh-huh. the population that that it's difficult, despite how much they worship. Uh, you know, a large se- segment worship him. I mean, at some level, any any human in, individual in Egypt, at any educational level, is going to start to ask questions and and, and really be disillusioned uh-huh. um, with, with with how bad things are, are getting and how he's saying, "I have it under uh, under control." Right. So.
0: Let's have one last question, and um, this gentleman right here in the second row. Hold
4: on, wait for the microphone one moment. Hi, thank you very much for a very interesting panel. My name is Mike Alban. I'm an independent researcher. I'm interested, why are we talking about North Sinai? What about the tribal situation and the security situation in general in the rest of the peninsula? And secondly, specifically, what about St. Catharines? Is that in any jeopardy? And uh, just a comment with regard to the uh, shelling or, or of that gunboat a day or two ago, supposedly a gunboat. When I read the press account of that and the explosion and the fire that took place, the intense fire, guys jumping overboard and so forth, I thought of EFPs, the explosively pr- uh, formed projectiles that were common in Iraq during uh, so much of the civil war, and I'm wondering if that might be a source of uh, of the weaponry. Uh, from Iran, ultimately. Thank you. Jansen, you want to start off with it? Start off with the last and then I'll ask you two guys to... Um,
2: I'm not a weapons expert, so I I can't talk specifically to specific weapons, Um, but at least what they claimed and what it appears from the photos that were released is that it was a guided missile, likely an anti-tank missile, that we know that they possess, a uh, Russian-made Cornet anti-tank missile. Um, and as far as the well, you were going to do South Sinai, um, well, Saint Catharines, St. St. Yeah. Um, as far as securing that, I mean, that's where the tourism is, and that's a big portion of uh, the economy. And so it's in their interest more so than securing North Sinai is to secure South Sinai, secure the tourism, um, and make that safe. And they and They've done a really good job at that in recent years. Um, and to my understanding, they have a much better working relationship with the tribes in that area uh, to help uh, secure, uh, to secure the roads. There aren't many ways to get to South Sinai. Um, you've got really, and I, th- I think, uh, are they even closed? Uh, there are times that they close the roads down, but there's only a couple uh, main roads. Um, other than that, they are uh, mountain roads that are controlled by these mm-hmm. tribes, uh, and they, in the south, uh, have a much better working relationship with the military. Didn't
3: yeah, you the, let that? me say on that, uh, you had two attacks <coughs> or three attacks in 2004-2005 on the Weibao, on Taba, where huge terrorist attacks with explosives. And since then, the only incidents that we know of that took place in the south of Sinai is the attack on the Korean tourists. Um, who were, uh, I mean, they were visiting Egypt and Israel. That's the only attack that we know that took place in South Sinai. They've been able to secure it because the tribes there are invested in the well being of the place, meaning that the tribes there are, many of them are running um, the small t- tourist resorts. They're, they have a, their interest into things continuing as they are. Again, the terrain, as you mentioned, makes a difference. The mountains are, you can't, it's not. Um, you can't cross them with the four-wheel drives that you, that you are using in the north. It's really the main road. So all the factors have helped the regime in this sense to make sure that nothing bad happens in the south of Sinai. Of course, the, the, if you mentioned St. Catherine, the, the real threat to St. Catherine was coming from a local police uh, general who was trying to seize the territory of the monastery, and that was a huge uh, court case that continues until today. So that's actually the more threat to the monastery at St. Catherine's.
0: Makhtar, did you want to add anything?
1: Um, not much to add. I mean, there's there's been some attempts uh, in, in in the south, but yes, it's it's a mixture of the the economic interests It's economically developed. Some some people have written about this in some way, kind of a compare and contrast between south and north, and potentially what we can learn actually from the, mm-hmm. so, the south. Um, uh, lack of militant activity is that yes, you do have this source of income, but I'll add controversially, in a controversial manner, also I think because there's also a lot more uh, mainland Egyptians um, that that are settling there uh, as well, and so that kind of uh, balances things out. There's a lot of people, yes, invested in their security and kind of see uh, in a clear-cut way um, how rolling with the terrorists, rolling with the jihadists, even if they have bad feelings against the government, that's not going to be in their best interest. But it's, 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 uh, it's relatively secure. Uh, some of the people who are on the run, for instance, uh, ABM, Musa he's he hangs out in St. Catherine area and stuff like that. So they, they feel safe there.
4: Um, yeah.
0: Great. That is going to uh, conclude our panel this afternoon. So thank you for coming. And I especially want to thank uh, the panelists, thank uh, Jansen and Sam and Mothar, And the three of you are fantastic. And uh, yeah. I know I learned an awful lot, had lots of questions, and I hope uh, you all enjoyed it too. Thank you for coming. Yeah.